It's a great privilege to be here today. Is that better? All right. Uh, what a joy to be with you today. We've been looking forward to this time with Grace Point, and uh, it has been a joy already to see faces. And now as I turn around and see around, I'm going to stop every once in a while and see somebody that I really uh, remember from the past. Uh, what a joy to be with you today. This is a church that has greatly impacted my life uh, through the years. Uh, you were the church that, that brought me on staff and took a risk on me before I had any training and said, we'll train you. We'll help you be a pastor and teach you what it means to pastor us. And, uh, and so I thank you. I remember those early days with uh, Jerry Stipp and with Sandy Ardry and the mentoring that they gave, uh, Pastor Rex as well. And what a, what a privilege to be back uh, with you now. I look around, some of those names that I just mentioned, Jerry particularly and Sandy, are now in heaven today. But I look around and I, I look at people that have impacted me when I was a teen here um, as Jack uh, for us, just looking at him and, and the fun that we've had together uh, through the years. But I remember one time uh, the Lord really working on my heart in a service. Uh, it was back at the old place, and uh, God had really moved me, and I was seeking the Lord at the altar at the end. And Jack came up, and he said uh, he had tears in his eyes as well as I did, and he said, uh, share with the church what's going on in your heart. And I was a teenager, and I remember uh, the impact that that had, and now I'm doing that, sharing with the church what's on my heart. So uh, thank you for your influence. Others, as I look around, uh, what a joy to be here today. And I even see my uncle and aunt, and it's just great to see everybody. Uh, got, got many family here that have come in. Thank you. Uh, we, we love you, and we're glad to be here today. There were two shoe companies, and these two shoe companies had the same idea. They wanted to go into a new country to sell shoes, independent of each other. They didn't know the other company was doing the same thing. And these two companies sent shoe salesmen into this brand new country. And when they got into the country, they discovered the exact same thing in the country. And that is that nobody in the country wore shoes. Well, one of the shoe uh, salesmen emailed back to his company uh, through email, and he sent back this message, and it said, Cancel all orders. Nobody wears shoes in this country. The other shoe salesman sent back an email to his company, and he said, triple all orders. Nobody wears shoes in this country. It's all perspective, isn't it? The way you look at the same situation. Well, in the past few months, uh, many people have asked my wife and I, why? The question why is a perspective question. Why would the pastor of a church leave his home church and go and become a missionary in a different country? Why would a pastor of a church where everything was going well and the church was growing and, and there was blessing of the Lord, where the people of the church loved him and he loved the people of the church, why would you leave that and go to a place where nobody knows you? Why would you take your wife and your kids out of a home, a beautiful parsonage with a strong salary for a pastor, and, and pull them out of that and go to a place where you'll live in an apartment and the salary won't be large? And, and you'll, why would you do that? You have to learn the language. Why would you do that? Well, the answer to that question, the obvious answer is that God calls, and that's what happened. But it, I want to express to you that it didn't just happen overnight. I didn't wake up one morning and all of a sudden say, I think God's calling us to go be missionaries in the former Soviet Union. Rather, it was through many years as I look back and seeing the hand of God lead us and direct us toward this mission field. 
I remember as I look back, uh, Jenny, when she was growing up in her family's home, their immediate neighbors for a number of the years of her growing up years were Lonnie and Connie Norris, uh, members of this church and, and been a part of this church for many years. And Lonnie and Connie were their immediate neighbors of their home. Lonnie and Connie were successful business people here in Fort Wayne, well-respected, had the good life as people felt it. This was a great couple, great family, had four kids. And in 1991, a significant thing happened in the world scene. The Soviet Union, uh, the enemy to the United States, began to crumble. Financially, politically, in every way, it fell apart. And in 1991, what's called perestroika, the, the union of countries fell apart. And what had been atheism and communism, all of a sudden now these individual countries began to open their doors, even to missionaries, to say, you can come and share with us what you have to share. And Lonnie and Connie Norris, I was now newly married in 1993, Lonnie and Connie Norris began to express what was going on in their hearts that lay people in this church were feeling a call to the mission field in Volgograd, Russia. In that time frame, they went to the Church of the Nazarene, the headquarters, and the headquarters said, you know, you're the atypical family to be missionaries. You're older. You've got four kids. Uh, we think that it's a possibility that you could go overseas to Volgograd and discover that it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be, and you're going to turn and come back. And so because of that, we're not going to spend our money on you to do that. You've got to spend your own money. And I'll never forget as a young man in this church one day seeing Lonnie and Connie Norris sell their home and all their belongings in their house and their cars. And one day it was all gone so that they could go be missionaries in Volgograd, Russia. It greatly impacted my life. I became the associate pastor of evangelism and discipleship at this church when it was Lake Avenue at that time. And Lonnie and Connie's ministry in Volgograd became, in a sense, my ministry here at the local church as well, as, as world evangelism was falling under my area of ministry. And so we prayed for them and we sent them things. I remember in 1998, going on my very first trip, we took about 20 people from Lake Avenue, Church of the Nazarene, to Volgograd, Russia, and experiencing their ministry firsthand as we were with them on the field there and helping them in ministry for a week and a half. I remember being greatly moved from that trip, and my prayers all of a sudden became more specific. The faces of the people I could see, and I began to pray more diligently for these people. Well, in the years to come, over the next number of years, God opened the door for us to go many different times, five different times to that field over the next few years, taking work and witness teams. One time my wife and I went by ourselves for uh, three and a half months, and we shared and, and taught with pastors across uh, the field of Russia. It was an incredible experience. But every time we went, these people, God etched their faces on our hearts, and we would pray and pray for these people. Well, in 2011, last year, at the beginning of last year, in January, I received a phone call from Jay and Tiana Sunberg. Jay and Tiana were missionaries at the time in Bulgaria. They're now in Hungary. Jay was Chuck's brother, so you guys maybe would know Jay. Jay and Tiana were missionaries in Bulgaria, and they called me. They were members of my local church in Houston, Texas. And they called, and they said, Pastor Scott, would you consider something, would you consider in October of this year, October 2011, in October, would you come to, 
Antalya, Turkey, to a missions conference. It's the Eurasia Missions Conference. And at that conference, there's going to be 700 missionaries and lay leaders from across Europe and Asia in the Church of the Nazarene, all gathering together. And would you share some devotional times with the different fields? And would you share a workshop in the conference? And, and would you pray about coming? And I said that I would pray about it, that we would, I would be interested in that. I got off the phone. My wife had overheard my conversation with Jay and Tiana, my part of it. And I didn't say anything, but in my heart, I really bad wanted to go on this trip. And when I got off the phone, my wife was the first to speak, and she said, Scott, I don't know everything that was said, but you need to go on that trip. And when she said that, and I'm not a very tearful kind of guy, but when she said that, I, I started crying. I said, I don't know why, but I really bad, like never before, want to go on this trip to be around all those missionaries and lay leaders across this, this, this region. The Lord opened the door for us to go, and in October, for me to go in October of 2011, I go. I walk into the, the hotel of the place, and one of the first people I see are Lonnie and Connie Norris, the same people who had been the neighbors of Jenny, who had given everything and gone on the mission field, the same people who had been uh, part of our ministry through the years that we had prayed for. We gave them big hugs and, and were excited. I was excited to see them. And I followed them around like a little puppy dog all week long because I just wanted to be around them. And so I just followed them around and enjoyed the week with them. Well, I, one conversation happened. I'm not exactly sure what it occurred in that moment. But Lonnie and Connie said, Scott, would you meet with us, meet with us for lunch someday while we're here? And I said, sure. We sat down for lunch and Lonnie said to me, he said, you know, my background is business. Uh, I've never been a pastor. I've never gone to seminary. I don't have that theological training. God has uniquely called me to what, he, what is needed on the field right now. <clears throat> but he said, in the midst of the work that I'm going to do, there's some things that I don't think I'm going to have time to do that you're uniquely qualified to do because of your background. Would you consider praying about coming, you and your family coming to the mission field and coming alongside us and helping us? And I said, yes, I'll pray. The next month of our life was the most agonizing prayer time that I've ever had in my life. Uh, if you understand that agonizing in prayer. I, I, Jenny and I did not want to leave Houston, Texas. We loved where we were. We loved the people of the church. We loved our ministry there. It was fun. We had great friends. We were wanting to retire there. There was nothing in us that wanted to move. But while we were there, while we prayed during that month, what happened was every time we would pray about staying, it was clear that the Lord was closing that door. And every time that we prayed, Lord, do you want us to do this? It felt like the door was wide open to us as we prayed. On October 27th, it was a Thursday night at about 10 o'clock at night. Jenny and I pray, were praying and we knew at that time that God wanted us to go and join Lonnie and Connie in the ministry there in the CIS. I remember during that time uh, hearing, it was actually at the conference, hearing one of the speakers speaking, and he said these words. He said, live your life in such a way that it makes no sense apart from the existence of God. Live your life in such a way that it makes no sense except that God exists. Today, in America, a lot of times, in the church in America, I've pastored, this is my experience so far as pastoring the church. In the church in America, we oftentimes live our life 
um, so that we don't have to have a lot of faith. We build up things around us so that we don't have to have faith. We have insurance, we have retirement savings, we have all these things so that we really don't have to. We have an income that comes every week and we don't have to think about it and we just don't live by faith. We give, we stretch ourselves a little bit as long as it fits within our budget, but don't really ask us to step out by faith. But the people of the scriptures, when they lived by faith, they didn't stay within grounds that were comfortable. Ask Noah, if you want to, what the people thought about his faith. They thought he was crazy. Ask Abraham, go leave everything you know, all the people, and go to another land. They thought he was crazy. Live your life in such a way that it makes no sense. My One question I have for you today is, how are you living your life today that lives in existence of the faith that you have? If that's a hard question for you to answer and you're a Christian, I want to challenge you today to examine that and step out in some way, in a way that requires faith for you today. Well, the CIS, the place that we're going to serve, is made up of 12 former republics, or now countries, that were a part of the Soviet Union before its collapse in 1991. The Church of the Nazarene is currently in six of the 12 countries that are a part of that field. We're currently in Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Armenia, and the sixth country we just call creative access country number two. It's a country that is the government and the majority of the people oppose Christianity, and so we're not allowed to say in a public setting like this where that is because it could produce concerns for the people serving there. Uh, We're in six of the 12 countries. We have our ministries there include 45 churches on five different districts. There are six compassionate ministry centers and six drug and alcohol rehab centers. And there's an extensive theological education program that currently has about 120 students that are involved in the program. Our mission on the field is really the same mission that Grace Point Church of the Nazarene has. And that's to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. I remember one of our general superintendents, Dr. Jerry Porter, saying, uh, programs do not make disciples. Disciples make disciples. So what God is doing in our life is he's taking a family of disciples and he's moving them to a new place to say, make disciples there who make disciples who make disciples. Our primary responsibilities on the field will involve discipleship of the essentially of the pastors on the field, helping them understand the basics of growing in Christ, what it means to be a good husband, a good father, um, a, a growing Christian in your devotional life, those kind of basic discipleship needs. It also will involve leadership development, which has to do with leading as a pastor. How do you help the church to think outside of itself rather than inside? And how do you help the church to grow spiritually? And so leadership development. And then lastly, theological education. Many of these young pastors are are brand new Christians, let alone brand new Nazarenes. And so we will be training them what it means to be a Nazarene, what we believe, the deeper things of the word of God, and helping them communicate those things with the local church. My wife and I began a journey in January. January 1 was our beginning of our uh, time as volunteers in the Church of Nazarene. For six months, we will serve as volunteers starting January 1 through the end of June. Those six months are broken into two parts. The first half, three months, are doing just what I'm doing right now, going from church to church 
in connections where we have within different denominate different uh, churches within the Church of the Nazarene and sharing what God's calling us to do, just like we're doing now. We're a little over halfway through that time. And just to give you a picture of that, um, we don't have a place. Everybody asks us, where is your home place right now? We don't have that. And so we move from place to place. In those three months, we will live in 26 different places. That's what we're doing for three months. At the end of that three months, at the end of March, in uh, April 9th, uh, we will be here on Easter Sunday out in the congregation. And then on, e- on the Monday after Easter, we have four one-way tickets from uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, to Kiev, Ukraine, which is where we will call home. Ukraine is a country that is about geographically, it's about the same size as Texas, uh, one of the biggest states in the United States. Now that I'm from Texas, I have a little pride there. One of the biggest states in the United States. It's Ukraine is about the size of Texas. And Kiev, where we will be living, has 3.5 million people living there. So this is a large urban city where we will call home. Starting July 1, we'll begin to have pay in the church again as missionaries, and I believe they're going to call us intern missionaries for that time. Our first year on the field will be engulfed in learning. Our main job will be to learn the Russian language. Now, if you're not familiar with Russian, it's quite a bit different than English. In fact, they use their own uh, alphabet. It's not the English alphabet. It's uh, based off of the Cyrillic alphabet. There are 33 letters rather than 26. Some of the same letters appear in both uh, alphabets, but they make different sounds. So like there's a capital H, but it doesn't make the sound like we have here. It makes an N sound. And so you have to retrain your head on some of the sounds that are made. I want to practice a little Russian with you because I've been working at it. Um, and so here's, here we go. Zelonia Sabaka Chitayak Kanigu. Pretty good. It's just practicing, just learning. The problem is I just said the green dog reads a book. So I'm not quite there yet. I'm still working on it. Our goal in the first year is to really try to learn as much of this language as we possibly can. I want to have you practice a little bit with me in Russian so you can walk away knowing a little Russian. Uh, everybody say the color yellow. Okay, now say blue. And now say bus. And then put those three together. Yellow, blue, bus. I love you too. That's what you just said to me in Russian. Yellow, blue, bus is I love you in Russian. So now you know a little bit of Russian as you leave today. We have been called to a place where, spiritually speaking, nobody in these countries wears shoes. And what I sense the Lord saying to me is triple the order. Nobody wears shoes in these countries. The promise of God came to us while we were seeking him through Isaiah 43. And I want to share just briefly with you this morning from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to bring them out. Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 7. These are the promises that God shared in my heart while we were seeking him for his will for us. If you'll stand with me, we'll read this, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Why don't you read with me if you want to join me on the screen before you this morning. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob... He who formed you, O Israel, 
Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Father, I ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word today. I pray, Lord, that uh, the promises that you put in my heart and in Jenny's heart through our seeking you would become promises fresh and new today for those that are listening. And that those whose hearts are open to you, that you would speak truth to them and an encouragement and a challenge in their heart to live sold out completely for you today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first promise that the Lord gave to me is a promise that's so simple, you almost overlook it when you read that first verse of Isaiah 43. And it's a promise that the Lord says, I will be your God. I'll be your God. That's the promise that he's giving to us as we go over on the mission field. Don't miss it because it seems so simple. The God who created all the universe by a spoken word has, who also created each of us says to me and says to you today, I will be your God. You can trust a God who's able to do that. About 45 years ago, there was a pastor in a small church in, in uh, Kansas City area. His name was Mel McCullough. Some of you might know that name. Uh, Dr. Mel McCullough was pastoring there. And a new family visited his church one Sunday. Their names were Mike and Linda Couch. Mike and Linda uh, were not following the Lord at the time. And they, they came to the church just beginning to seek the Lord a little bit in their life. And they visited And the Monday after that, they received a phone call, Mike and Linda, from the pastor. Pastor Mel called them and said, can I come and visit? Can my wife and I stop by your house and and visit with you sometime? They were talking with Linda, and Linda was a little more open than Mike was at the time. And she said, yeah, come by. Go ahead, stop by. Well, the night that they came by Mike and Linda's house, Mike was wanting to shock the pastor. People try to shock pastors a lot. And so he pulled out a long cigar and started to smoke it before the pastor came. And so the pastor came in, and he was puffing this large cigar at the pastor when he came in the house. Well, the pastor wasn't waylaid by that. He he began the conversation. A couple of hours he was there at the house. They had an incredible time. The Lord moved in, and before the end of the evening, Mike and Linda got down on their knees in their living room, and they gave their hearts to Jesus, and they were changed. Uh, in the years that followed, Mike, as he was growing in Christ, began to sense a call of God to become a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. 
And they were in Kansas City, and so he began attending Nazarene Theological Seminary. One of the classes he had to take was a class taught by Dr. Chick Shaver. Dr. Shaver was a seminary professor there, and he taught in the area of evangelism. But he was known for being maybe one of the more unusual uh, instructors at the seminary by seminarians, because rather than making you study about evangelism, he made you actually go out and do it, practice it, tell people about your faith, and then write a paper about it. Most of the seminary students didn't want to do that. They would rather read a book and write a paper than have to go and do it. And so it wasn't a very popular class. And Mike, and Mike attended this class, and the homework assignment was to go and knock on five doors of your neighbors and ask them five questions and then write, how did you experience that? What was that, what did that feel like? And so Mike and Linda did not want to do it. They were afraid, and but they did not want to fail their class. And so Mike, kind of like Jonah, not wanting to go across the street, goes across the street and they knock on a family's door. And that was my family. It was 40 years ago. I was one year old at the time. What Mike and Linda didn't know when they knocked on my parents' door was that they had just come off of a time in their marriage where they had been separated. They were headed for a divorce. There was a lot of sin in their life and things that would make divorce natural and, and the easy excuse for their family. And they had headed that direction, and they had actually moved to Kansas City with one more chance to try to make their marriage work. I was one years old. I was a baby in that home. They knocked on the door of their house, Mike and Linda did, and my mom and dad opened the door, and they went through their five questions, just trying to get through a homework assignment. And the last question was, if you don't have a church, would you come and visit our church? And my mom looked at my dad and said, you promised that if we moved here, we would do it. And my dad said, okay. The very first Sunday then, we were in Kansas City. We were at Shawnee Church of the Nazarene. It was the first time my family went to Nazarene Church. My dad says today that he felt like during the service that that pastor who was speaking had followed him all week long and watched his life and came and was preaching right at him the whole service. And at the end of the service, he had everybody close their eyes and he said, if you feel like God has been speaking to you today, would you raise your hand? And my dad, 23 years old, raised up his hand. He said, put your hands down, look up. And he said, if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask that you step out of your pew walk down the aisle, and kneel down at these wooden benches we have in the front of the church. And they started playing a song, and my dad did not move. He sat right in the back, didn't move. The pastor came down off of the platform, and he pointed at my dad, and he did like this. (laughs) Mike and Linda Couch, who had invited my parents to church, were horrified that the pastor had just called out their brand-new neighbors. And they came down, my dad and mom, and knelt at an altar just like this. They repented of their sins. They asked Jesus to come into their life. And they were radically changed. I was about nine months old. And I went home with a brand new mom and dad. God changed them from the inside out. They were brand new. The things of their old life were gone. They were new. Well, my mom and dad felt so different. They were They felt like, you you might remember back when you came to Christ, if you know him today, they felt like they were walking on clouds 
They sensed his presence in their heart. They didn't want anything to change. And so instead of going home, they thought it would change if they went home. They went and got in their car, and Kansas City has a loop around it, 435. And they drove around the loop three times and came back to church because they didn't want anything to change. They just were driving around going, what in the world happened to us this morning? Well, for a year, while we lived in Kansas City, my couch would take a baseball. My dad loved baseball. And he would meet my dad after work out in the street, right outside their home, and he would throw a baseball with my dad. And he discipled my dad with a baseball in his hand. 25 years after that day, I was now a pastor, an associate pastor here at Lake Avenue Church of the Nazarene. And God was calling us, Jenny and I, to leave Fort Wayne and go to Kansas City to get better trained for ministry. I moved to Kansas City. We moved to Kansas City. And one of the first classes I was in was taught not by a young chick shaver, but now by an old chick shaver. The same man who had given a homework assignment to my mom, to, to Mike Couch, who came across the street, was now giving me a homework assignment to go across the street and knock on my neighbor's doors. I tell you that story to say only God can do all of that. And there's much more to that story if I had an hour for you today. But there is much more to that. Only God is able to orchestrate that kind of wonderful weaving plan of grace and mercy. And that's what God has done. And that same God says to me and Jenny and our kids, I will be your God as you go over there. The same one who orchestrated that in your life is going with you while you go over there. And I say to you today, whatever you're going through, There is a God who's able to orchestrate wonderful miracles of grace and love in your life today. The Lord gave my mom a a promise from Psalm 23 when she first came to know the Lord. Psalm 23, 6. It says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a great promise, isn't it? Surely goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in my mom and dad's life, that transformed life, it was as if mercy and love were two people, and they were following my mom and dad all around in their life because God had promised it. And that same God who promised it is promising me, I'll go with you as you go on the mission field. The second promise comes from verse 2, and it's simply this. I will not leave you alone. I will not let you be alone. No calamity can swallow up the people of God. I want you to note in verse 2 that there will be tough times. This is not a promise that everything's going to be easy. This is a promise that when you're going through the tough times, Jesus says, I will not leave you alone. You won't be alone. Listen to it. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. When I went to Kansas City, it was our second year at Kansas City um, in seminary. And and I remember um, Jenny and I had been married for about seven years at that time. And after one year of marriage, we decided it was time for us to start having kids and, and as we were hoping to have kids, no kids were coming. And the years went by, and it became really tough on us when we were first here. 
at uh, Lake Avenue. It was tough because we were wanting to have kids and they weren't coming. And we went to seminary and we had kind of gotten over that. And we were, okay, this is going to be all right. We're not going to have kids. And we were, we were moving through that time and we were trusting the Lord for it. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, when you get old, the, uh, it's your kids who really end up taking care of you when you get older. And we don't have any kids. And so um, we better start saving some money. I was almost 30 years old, and I didn't have any uh, retirement savings started. And there was a guy in the church that did the mutual fund thing. And, and I, so I talked to him. His name was Galen. I said, Galen, we need to start. We can afford $100 a month. Can you help us invest $100 a month? And Galen said, well, it's kind of hard to start with $100. Why don't you save about four months, get $400, then we'll start your mutual fund savings, and then you can put $100 a month in. I said, great. So four months went by. The time for us to do that came. I forgot to mention it to him on Sunday morning. And so in the afternoon, I called Galen and I said, Galen, um, I've got my $400. Are you going to be at church tonight? He said, yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to bring it with me. I'll give you the check tonight and we can start this process. He goes, great. So we got off the phone. I filled out the check, but I forgot to ask him who I make the the check to. I didn't know what company we were going to use or anything. So I, I go to church that evening and I have the check in my pocket and I sit down in church. We're about in the second row here at the church service. There were a missionary family speaking. And I remember, um, I don't remember much about the service. I don't remember the missionary, where they were even from. Um, but at the end of the service, the pastor said, uh, we're going to take an offering. And I, uh, and I felt like the Lord said, Give him some, give this missionary family some money. And I said, uh, okay. And I pulled out my wallet and I didn't have any cash in my wallet. And I leaned over to Jenny and I said, Jenny, do you have the checkbook with you? No. Do you have any money? No. And I was like, Lord, I don't understand. Quietly, I wasn't speaking out loud. Lord, I don't understand. I don't have any money. And he said, what's in your shirt pocket? And I said back to the Lord in my heart, I said, Lord, that's our retirement. And as clear in my heart as I can speak it today, the Lord said these words to me, I'm your retirement. And I pulled out my check and I showed it to Jenny and she kind of did like this. She knew what that meant. So I wrote it to the church and I turned it in. Galen came up to me after uh, the service and said, "Uh, do you have your money? I said, no, no, Uh, long story. I have to give it to you later. Um, I tell you that story to say this, the Lord has been faithful. His promise is he will not leave you alone. When he calls you to step out, he says, I will go with you wherever you go. When you have the difficult times, you will not be alone. You will have tough times, but you will not be alone. I know going over to the CIS, it will not be easy, but the Lord has promised when you go, I will be with you. I won't leave you be alone. I love the way it says it in Psalm chapter 3. It's in the message. And this is what it says in the translation of the message. It says, God, look, enemies past counting, enemies sprouting like mushrooms, mobs of them all around me, roaring their mockery. Ha, no help for him from God. But you, God, shield me on all sides. You ground my feet, you lift my head high, With all my might, I shout up to God. His answers thunder from the holy mountain. I stretch myself out. I sleep. Then I'm up again, rested, tall and steady, fearless, 
before the enemy mobs coming at me from all sides. You get the picture of what's happening. King David is in the middle of battle. There are people surrounding him on all sides coming in to destroy him. And he realizes that God is his shield around him. And he stretches out in the middle of battle with enemies coming at him from all sides. And he lays down and he takes a really nice night of sleep. And he wakes up the next morning rested, ready again with the enemies surrounding him. But now he's rested knowing that the Lord is with him. The last promise is from Isaiah 43, 4. And this is a promise. I will make you fruitful. I will make you fruitful. Listen to Isaiah 43, 4. It's one of my favorite verses in the word. It says, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. You understand that? You give me your life and I will pour people into your life. In exchange for your surrendered life to me, I'm going to pour people who need to know me into your life. I've been reading uh, recently again, or I have read recently again, the book of Jonah. If you haven't read Jonah in a while, it's only four chapters. Pull it out even this afternoon and just read through it. It's a wonderful, great story. Everybody here, or the majority of the people here, are very familiar with it. In fact, we obviously, we call it Jonah and the Whale, but it's, that's not the best title for this book. It actually should be called Jonah and the Worm, because the story is much more about the worm than about the whale. We like to tell it as a children's story because of the whale, because it's kind of unique, but it's really much more about the worm at the end of the story than it is about the whale. You know the story. Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh, And proclaim that if they don't change their ways, if they don't repent, that God's going to destroy this city. And Jonah says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. They don't deserve it. I'm leaving. I'm out of town. And so he takes off. He crosses the water. He gets on a boat and takes off. You know the story. He's swallowed by a whale. He's spit up on the ground. And finally he says, okay, to God. Okay, I got your picture. I'll go. And so he goes to Nineveh. And he proclaims, we're about at Jonah 3 now, he proclaims to Nineveh, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you in a moment's time. And guess what happens in Nineveh? The people repent and turn to God. It says they fast and pray and repent and turn to God. And God relents in his anger and does not bring upon them the disaster he had promised. And probably the worst conversation that's in the scripture between a man and God happens in that moment at the end of Jonah 3. Jonah's walking up a hill near Nineveh, and he's talking to God. It's very embarrassing uh, for the church. He's talking to God, and he says, uh, you know, God, I told you you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go there in the first place, because I knew you're slow to anger and compassionate and gracious, and you were going to forgive them anyway, and I didn't want to go there and see... You forgave them, just like I said you would. I can't believe it. And he goes up on the top of this hill, and it's almost as if, it doesn't say this, but it's almost as if he goes to the top of the hill and he sits down because he thinks, maybe God's going to change his mind, and I want a really good view when Nineveh is destroyed. This would be cool, and I want to watch. And he gets up there, and he builds a little shelter, and the scripture says, Jonah chapter 4, the whole 
meat of Jonah is in Jonah 4. And the Lord, it says, the Lord provides a plant and grows up right by Jonah, this beautiful plant with these huge leaves that cover him. And it's hot. And he gets under those leaves. If you can picture a palm tree, you've seen the scenes, right? It's beautiful, palm tree, the shade. He gets to watch just in case the Lord destroys the city. And he is very, very happy up there. Jonah chapter 4. The second thing it says is God provided a worm. He provided the plant. Same God provides a worm. The worm goes up the plant and eats these big leaves. And that comfort, that shade, is now gone. And the third thing is God provides a strong eastern wind. And it comes in and brings this huge amount of heat. And all of a sudden, there he is, sitting under this plant that's just a pull. Sitting under it, the heat is bearing down on him, and there's no shade. The scripture says that he's so mad. He says, I'm so mad, I wish I could die. That's what Jonah says. He's angry, and he wishes he could die. And the Lord, at the very end of Jonah, chapter 4, he says to Jonah, you're so concerned about this worm. Should I not be concerned about this great city of 120,000 people? And I want to tell you, as a pastor for the last 18 years of my life, we, the church, and I'm a part of that, I'm not talking about you, we, we get so concerned over a, Hundred thousand worms. It's not the way I want it in the church. I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with that. I wish it were this way. I'm not pleased. I'm uncomfortable. We're so worried about the worm. And I can almost hear the Lord saying to the church, you're so worried about the worm. Should you not be with me concerned over these 120,000 people in this great city? There's a story, and I'll end with this. Um, it's a legend about a king. And the king is a king over the entire Arabian Peninsula. And this king uh, needs a horse. He's without a horse, the legend says. And so he sends people from his palace into the entire peninsula to find a horse for the king. And they go out and they discover, they look at hundreds of thousands of horses And they bring back with them to the palace the 40 strongest, fastest horses on the entire peninsula. When they get back to the palace, they have these 40 horses for the king to choose from. And they begin to train these horses. And the key to the training is that these horses need to be able to, when the the king blows his whistle, that means he's in trouble. And the horse needs to stop whatever he's doing and come to the king because the king needs his help. This is the training. So they go on with his training until the horses are ready. And the final part of the training is they take the 40 horses and they put them in a corral, the legend says, on the side of a mountain. And at the base of the mountain, there's a river running in the valley. And the horses can hear the water running through the valley. For three days, the legend says, the horses are not given anything to drink. In this dry, hot land, nothing to drink for three days. They hear the water running through the valley. And the legend says that on the third day, someone goes down and opened the door, uh, the, the gate, and the 40 horses begin to run. The fastest, strongest horses begin to run as fast as they can down the hill to get a drink of water, as you can imagine. 
And the king is on the top of the hill, and he blows his whistle. The legend says that out of 40 horses, there was one horse that put his brakes on going down the hill with the fastest, strongest horses in the entire peninsula, all their momentum going downhill. There was one horse who put his hooves into the ground and stopped his momentum and turned and began to run up the hill to the king. Church, we're called to be the kind of people who hear the voice of God and respond immediately and say, whatever I'm doing that feels comfortable, whatever I'm doing that I want to do, you've called me and I'm going. We're not all going to Russia. We're not all going to the Ukraine. In fact, there might be some of you who would say, I, I, don't, I don't feel the call. Well, I want to read to you from some words from William Booth. He was the founder of Salvation Army 100 plus years ago. This is what he says about the issue of called. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you to go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will, whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to this world. Challenging words for us. Not called, not hearing the call. You where you're at, God's calling you to something. Listen, and when he listens, run to the master.